Okay, good. Let's uh, turn our Bible to Matthew 5. We're continuing to forge ahead as we're teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. We're just going to stay with this for a while. And uh, I'm just, I'm personally getting very enriched by this. Hope you are. If not, that's okay. It's good for me. Amen. But uh, today we're going to take a look at um, really the next section of Matthew 5. We've kind of gone through the core values and kind of gone through what Jesus sets up as who he is as the one that fulfills the law and what Christianity is supposed to be as salt and light. And then what he's going to do beginning in verse 21 and going through verse 48. If you're taking notes, this is, this is the way you need to, you know, you can get your mind around the chapter. From 21, chapter 5, verse 21, chap, to chapter 5, verse 48, what he's going to do is, he's going to identify six different areas of teaching where the Pharisees had taught the law of Moses in a way that was off, where, it was, where they had twisted it. Mostly, they had twisted it to sort of placate the, the lusts of, of human hearts. And, and what, they, what the Pharisees had done was they had really taught people to try to keep the external issues in place so it looked like externally somebody was keeping the law of Moses but they paid no attention to the internal issues and so what Jesus does in these in these 25 or 27 verses or so what he does is he goes you've heard it said but i say unto you you've heard it said but i say unto you he does it six different times and this is critical because we actually get God teaching us the law of Moses. That's pretty good. When we have Jesus actually teaching us the law. Explaining what the Lord really meant when he gave Moses those instructions. Now, in the age to come, it says the law will go forth from Zion and he will teach us his ways. Jesus is going to have lots of teaching meetings in the next age. We're going to go to Jerusalem I don't know exactly how it'll work, but he'll have potentially have, you know, conferences on different subjects. And Jesus will teach us about the beauty of Jesus. Or he'll teach us about the, you know, the, the power of uh, the kingdom. Or, you know, he'll teach us different features. The law will go forth from Zion. Well, here we get a snippet of Jesus Christ teaching us the law by Holy Spirit revelation. And so he's undoing the knots that the Pharisees had, had tied in there and, and reinterpreting it by the Holy Spirit. This is so, so good and so important. Now, a, a couple things that I want to mention. Number one is this. Jesus is not saying that the law is the problem. In fact, just a few verses earlier, he said, I haven't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. And so he's not changing Moses' law. He's reinterpreting it with Holy Spirit. And so the phrase that he uses, you have heard it said, 
but I say he's dealing with primarily the teaching of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the oral traditions. He's not dealing with the law. And what the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the rabbinic teachers had done was they had taken their interpretations, essentially canonized them, put them in teaching books, and escalated their teachings on the same par with the law of Moses. And so when Jesus says, you've heard it said, he's not dealing with what Moses delivered. He's dealing with the rabbis, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law who had twisted it and, and, and added humanistic interpretations to, to really just to get people to keep the form of it without having the heart of it. He's dealing with what they, what they were teaching, not what Moses was teaching. That's a really important point. Because we don't have to pit Jesus against Moses. They're on the same team. In fact, the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ. And so this whole package is good for us. You know, the whole Old Testament, the whole, Old New, uh, the whole New Testament, that's all good for us. So we don't, we don't, you know, discount the old. Jesus fulfills the old. His teachings are the fulfillment. His life is the fulfillment. He is it. And so that, that's a really, really important point. That he's not dealing with particularly uh, Moses' teaching as much as he's dealing with the incorrect teachings by the Pharisees, the rabbinic teachers, and he's, he's redoing it. Now, I want to give you those six sections, and most people, their Bible has them broken out. Most people, or most Bibles, have those six sections with a heading over the top of each one of them. How many, how many when you're, as you're looking at your Bible... There's a heading over verse 21, and then again, there's a heading over 27, and then a heading over 31, and it, it breaks down like that. Just wave at me. So yeah, most of you, your Bibles break it out. So there's your six sections, and I'll give them to you in case you don't have your Bible with you or your Bible doesn't do that. The first section is verse 21 through 26, and I, I have my own labels. Different commentators will have their own labels and, and say that this is what it's about, I use one word labels or a couple words just to help me to kind of get my mind about around what's being discussed here. So verse 21 through 26 is the issue of anger. That's the issue he's going after. Verse 27 through 30, I call it the issue of lust. Now others will call it different things, but this is, what I, this is the way I, I'm seeing it, lust. You know, particularly over the issue of sexual immorality. The next one is 31 through 32, uh, 31 through 32, and that's covenant breaking. Covenant breaking. The next one is 33 through 37, and that's swearing falsely. Swearing falsely, making an oath falsely. So we got 21 through 26, anger. 27 through 30, lust. 31 and 32, covenant breaking. 33 through 37, swearing falsely. 38 through 42, I call that retaliation. He's dealing with the issue of retaliation. And then I see this a little differently than, than others. So I'm just, some of you, you're like, 
just tell us what you think and it's fine. And others, you've studied real hard the Sermon on the Mount, and then there's others that are listening by podcast and are like doing this as a part of a class or, you know, they're adding this to their studies that they've gone through school with. And, and so I see this sixth section, verse 43 through 48, not as a, a sin that he's trying to address, but as the answer to the previous five. And so I see the sixth section simply as love. Love. So he deals with anger, lust, covenant breaking, swearing falsely, retaliation, and the antidote is love. So those are the six areas. What we'll do is we'll take those in and pieces. We'll do a couple sections at a time to just work through it. And one other point I want to make, Jesus is an incredible teacher. He was an incredible teacher. I mean, the best teacher who's ever lived, Jesus Christ, when he preached and taught, the, the people marveled. They said, we've never heard anyone teach like this. I mean, there was an anointing for sure. Obviously, he's God in the flesh. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit. But he is breaking it down. He's, my point is, he's an amazing communicator, Jesus Christ. And he's breaking things down for them in ways that they hadn't thought of. One of his key teaching tools was stories, parables. He would tell parables to illustrate certain truths. Well, he, used, he also used lots of other what they call literary devices where he's using illustrations or ironic explanations. Even at times, he's using uh, hyperbole, which is exaggeration. For instance, if I were preaching and I said, uh, man, uh, it took forever. You know, it just, was, it just took forever. You know that it doesn't mean it was eternal, <laughs> That I was, you know, say if I, if I said I was waiting forever. You, you instantly know because of our society, I'm not saying I waited for eternity and I'm continuing to wait for eternity. Jesus does the exact same thing at times. He uses modern phrases, sometimes with exaggeration, sometimes in, with ironic, uh, you know, phrases, Because he's an amazing communicator and his hearers, the whole time they're going, whoa, oh, oh, I get it. But as is the case, you know, 2,000 years of time separate from when he was teaching to our, our day, as well as cultural differences from, you know, uh, the east to the west, as well as linguistic differences. We're getting, you know, we're getting the Greek and 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 the English, and he was speaking in Hebrew. And so we get a little bit lost, you know, just in terms of the nuance and the language. My point is this. Oftentimes, we'll read the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm prefacing it all with this because you'll see in a minute. We'll read it and we'll go with this rigid literalism. We go, see, he says right there, cut off your hand. I'm going, give me the knife. I'm going to cut my hand off. And, and he's not, the point is, he's not trying to give us a, a, a rigidity on how you deal with the issue of lust. 
that you're supposed to chop your hand off. He's actually, he's actually using irony, and I'll point that out in a minute. He's using a, a literary device, irony, to, poke, to really to poke at the Pharisees, to mock the way that they had interpreted the law, and to make a literal point, and that's to deal ruthlessly with sin. So does that make sense? He's an amazing communicator. He's saying certain things that if we just read it face value with rigid literalness, we go, I, I, I guess I need to rip my eye out of my head right now. Just uh, go pray for me because I'm going for it. Here I go. That's not, that's not what he's trying to do there. And so we've got to understand he's a communicator. He's communicating with, with uh, you know, stories, parables. He's communicating with literary devices. He's, he's using things that make sense for the people of that day. Does that, does that make sense? That's an incredibly important point to understand as you're approaching this. Now, one other little thing, and then I'll actually quit prefacing and start teaching a little bit. The word, that is, teaching the verses. Uh, I've, never, I've never heard this or seen this before, but just even as I was looking at this again freshly uh, this week, the three sections in the center, the issue of lust covenant breaking, and swearing falsely. It seems to me it's all one conversation about marital treachery. It seems to me those three sections, you could actually put them all under one heading about marital treachery because he deals with the, the lust of the heart that causes people to commit adultery he doesn't address fornication. So in the lust section, he's talking about people who are married. Well, the covenant-breaking section is specifically about marriage relations. And then he goes on and talks about keeping your word. So I see that as a sub, those three as a subsection where he's talking about the issue of marital treachery. I'm going to deal with that in another, se- another section. Because there's much to say about it, and there's many different vantage points, and many commentators and scholars today, awesome guys, guys that you love, one guy says it, it clearly means this, and then the other guy goes, it clearly means that. So you just got to sort of pray through it and study it and go, okay, Holy Spirit, what's going on here? And I'll give you my best on it. All right, good. That's for everybody that's studying this a, a smidge deeper. All right, let's go through, and let's read this first section about anger. It's the biggest, in other words, it's the, the largest of these six sections. Each of them, he says, you have heard it said, but I say. Now, let's just go ahead and begin to read this from verse 21 through verse 26. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you should not commit murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. He's quoting Exodus 20, verse 13. It's the sixth commandment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Raka is a, a Greek word, just means stupid or idiot. It would be our, our word would be idiot. That's it. 
But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell fire. You fool would be equivalent to us saying, you stupid idiot. Okay? So Raka is idiot. You fool in that time would be, you're a ridiculously stupid idiot. It's, it's you know, I'll, I'll see you one and, and give you a little bit more, you know. I'm going to raise you a little bit. All right, verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Verse 25. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison. Surely I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Okay. Let's just begin to work through this. He says, you heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Here's what he's doing. He's dealing with the way that the Pharisees explained the sixth commandment. What he's dealing with is the fact that the Pharisees, they focus solely on the external issue of murder without dealing with the inner issue of contempt, anger, and hatred. And so in the society, as long as you didn't kill anybody, as long as you didn't murder anybody, you could walk around with lots of unforgiveness, anger, all sorts of bad attitudes, real contempt, holding grudges, and, and, and having a real foul heart towards people, and you still were keeping the law. And what Jesus is doing with us is telling us this point. I mean, if, if he were, if you're just to, just to sort of summarize the, the idea is, you know that you're not supposed to kill somebody physically, you're not supposed to murder somebody, but if you walk around with anger and hatred in your heart, you're actually doing the same thing as if you actually murdered them. Whoop. <laughs> because... Probably most of us aren't murderers. But from time to time, most of us have had real serious contempt towards somebody in this life. We, we might think, man, I just hate that guy. Or we might even say it. I just hate that guy. That guy's an idiot. See, the issue of those, those terms, Raka and your fool... It, the, the point isn't so much the phrase like, it's not like you can call him a dingbat, but you can't call him an idiot because idiot is the one you get judged for, but dingbat's fine. The point isn't the actual term. The point is what's going on in your heart towards that person that makes you say that. That's the issue. And so Jesus, he gives three tiers. He goes angry with somebody, calling them, you know, 
you idiot, calling them you incredible idiot. Because the issue is all the same. Three different tiers, but the issue is your heart. What's going on inside you that makes you get so angry with people and imagine yourself to be better than them? What's going on inside you that, that you're able just to, you know, just to belittle somebody and, 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 and speak you know, contemptuously about that person and, and, and say real wicked things about that person? What's going on inside? And that's what he's dealing with. And beloved, this one is one where, you know, bottom line is, when you see it for what it is, you just go, I'm, I, I'm guilty. Forgive me, Lord. Because, I mean, virtually all of us, from time to time, will have a disagreement with somebody, will be done wrong by somebody, and uh, we'll feel that thing begin to rise up inside of us. Do you know what I'm talking about? Your adrenaline begins to pump. Somebody, it's like somebody turned the heat on in the room. You know, your body temperature gets hotter. Some of us, some of us have this problem that when you get a little angry, your brain starts operating on fast forward and you can think of all sorts of zingers to just blast that person with. Some of us, when we get angry, we just, oh, I mean, we just almost, you know, internalize. We just freeze and just, we're just about to explode. Some of us, we get angry, we stuff it, and it comes out later mad about something else that's unrelated because of an issue with the person we had. The deal is Jesus is dealing with anger in the heart towards others. And how we process that, how we handle that in our relationships, and what we allow and what we don't allow, and how we work through it. And I would say virtually all of us from time to time have had disagreements, problems, issues with people. We feel that anger begin to rise up and then we make choices on that anger that leads us into sin. And well, we just, you know, we think of it this way, well, that guy did me wrong and so I just got mad and it's okay. But Jesus goes, no, no, anger in the heart actually ends up with murder in the heart and murder in the heart will actually send you to hell just like murder in the flesh will. (laughs) See, sometimes we get this picture, the Old Testament was hard, but we're under grace now, so it's easy. And what Jesus does and goes, now here's the Old Testament law, but here's what you should have understood it to mean. That it's not just about the external, it's about the internal. You can skate by, uh, you know, in in this time they could have skated by, so to speak, not in God, but uh, under the Pharisees' watch. They could have skated by by not committing the external. He said the whole time the Lord is looking at the heart. Let me ask you something. Don't answer it. I know what the answer is, but just you answer it to yourself. Have you ever wished somebody away? You know, that person at work, they know, they know exactly where your buttons are. They know them somehow. They know the three things that really tick you off and they do them all the time. And you get up in the morning and you just go, oh, 
I do not want to have to go in there and deal with so-and-so. I just wish they would just, just go. What is wishing someone away? What is wishing that they didn't exist? Anybody want to answer that? That's the spirit of murder. That's the spirit of murder. And we need to see the light in which Jesus was framing this issue. He goes, it's not about whether you do it with your hands. It's about whether you do it with your heart. And if you're doing it with your heart, it's as serious as doing it with your hands. And he gives us this, you know, raka and fool and anger. He gives us those features to help us to identify what's going on inside. What is it that's in there that makes me think they're a fool and I'm not? It makes me think that I can exalt myself and belittle them. What is it that you know, I, uh, makes me want to allow myself to hold contempt towards others? And that's what he's dealing with is that the heart that harbors internal contempt, that, that has anger and, and negativity and, and you know, you know, just all sorts of just yick on the inside towards somebody, and imagine that that's okay. Beloved, this is not okay. And, you know, we, we say little Christian things to sort of try to whitewash it a little bit. We'll say, well, well, I don't like him. I mean, in Christ I have to love everybody, but I don't like him. I don't think that's right. I think there's a place where you go, you know what? Whatever I'm feeling that's negative toward that person, it's probably me and not them. Come on. It's probably my issue and, and, and not theirs really. It's probably a sign that I've got stuff I need to work through and I need to quit justifying myself and condemning them. I need to go ahead and say, okay, deal with what's here, Lord, because what you've done is so graciously allowed someone into my life who knows exactly where my buttons are and they push them every time I'm around and so then I begin to manifest anger and a spirit of murder. Thank you, Lord, for showing me that I've got some serious issues and you've sent this blessed person in to help me. But I, I mean, you know the person and, and we've been the person where we walk around and it's always somebody else, it's not us. It's always somebody else, it's not us. You fool, man, that idiot. Man, he's people. I mean, I've said it before, ministers say this, ministry would be so easy if it wasn't for all the people. At a certain level, we've got to get this issue of anger, contempt, hatred, and all this ugliness that's inside of our heart dealt with by running to the Lord. I propose that when you have personal problems, people problems, issues that cause you to manifest anger, it's the Lord graciously identifying for you an area of sin in your life that should be dealt with. It's really not about that person being an idiot. It's really about you harboring a spirit of murder. Mm. The Lord, his, his point is this. For him, the thoughts 
and the intentions of our heart, the things that we feel and think about others, they're every bit as important to him as what we actually do. That's critical, beloved. That is so, so, so critical. Unchecked anger and contempt in our heart, it is the spirit of murder. So then, he goes on in verse 23, and he says it like this. Therefore, he goes, so in light of what I just taught about the issue being the contempt and anger inside, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before, there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. He's helping us to root out the inner issues of anger, and he's calling us to be peacemakers. That's what he's doing with this thing. Calling us to lay down our lives unto reconciliation. Now what's amazing is, right there he says, it's more important for you to be reconciled to another who has a problem with you than it is for you to present your gift at the altar. So let's just put it in an IHOP context. You're walking through the hallway, and you see that person you have a problem with, and you're on your way to the prayer meeting. You catch eyes, and you look down, you go, I just gotta get to this prayer meeting, just be with Jesus. Well, here's the deal. Jesus is in the prayer meeting going, hey, you need to go back into the hallway and fix it with that person before you and I have this conversation. That's what he's saying. Leave your gift at the altar, go be reconciled, and then come and present your gift. Beloved, that is incredible. Now, here's the interesting thing about it. It, This is the one where he says, if you remember your brother has something against you. This isn't the one where you've done them wrong. This is the one where, for whatever reason, they're mad at you. Most people don't like to walk up to somebody else who it feels like they're mad at you and go, hey, did I do something? Most people don't want to have that conversation. Is there something I could do to make it right? Most of us, we just go, I don't know why they're mad at me. Whatever's wrong with them, they need to get it right. Praise the Lord. Let me go pray. The Lord goes, no, that's not how you're supposed to go. Actually, the way you're supposed to go is you're seeking me. That's great. I'm telling you to go and reconcile with them. And so he tells us the activity and the importance of it that it is to him. And then in verse 25, he gives us the mentality. So the activity is reconciliation with the one who has a problem with you. How important is it to the Lord? He goes, do that before you present your gift. And then you go, okay, so what's the mentality I need to have? Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him. Lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown in prison. Surely I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Now, it's possible he's talking about, you know, people that are all with one another is related to the issues of usury and actually getting thrown in jail because of money owed and things of that nature. It's, pro- it's, it's possible, it's probable he's addressing that in a, in a micro way. 
But I would say he's using that example of someone who owes someone money and issue of usury. He's, he's using that as the example of how you're supposed to deal with what he was just talking about, being reconciled with the one who has ought against you. He's giving us the mentality. And the mentality is, agree with them quickly. <laughs> See, agreeing with the guy that's got the problem with you quickly is very difficult. Because most of the time, somebody has a problem with us, we show back up and we go, okay, look, I know you're mad at me. What's wrong with you? Why do you have a problem? And that's our mentality. I'm right. You've got the problem with me. Here I am to, fi- to fix this problem. So what do you need to, what, what's the problem? What's your problem, man? <laughs> he goes, no, that's, that's not the mentality. The mentality is agree with them quickly. So you show up to the person who has the issue, and you say, could you explain to me what it is that I've done that's, that's caused hurt in your heart? And, and they, they might say 10 things. He, he's saying, look for any of them that you can agree with. Agree with your adversary quickly. Most of the time, somebody has a problem with another person. Most of the time, I mean, so often... So often, it's a misunderstanding. So often, I mean, I mean, I can't tell you how many times, 20 years of pastoral ministry, how many times the conversation, well, they thinking this and they're thinking this, and what's going on there is simply miscommunication. I was a communication major in college. I understand this point. This is about rhetorical theory and criticism, and what I'm trying to say is, most of the time, they don't know what the other one's thinking or saying, and they get mad about it. In marriage, oftentimes, husband and wives are mad at each other about stuff the other, they think the other one said, and neither person thinks or says, has thought or said what the other person is accusing them of, and they're mad about stuff that's not real. Oftentimes. So his, what he's telling us to do is show up to get reconciled and say, how have I wronged you? I, I want to hear your heart in this. Agree with your adversary quickly. Let me, let me hear what it is. And then when they explain it to you with an honest, open heart that doesn't carry a bunch of internal anger and contempt and disdain and you fool kind of mentalities. With an honest, open heart, you listen and you look for what you can agree with. And so often, beloved, so often, when I've, when I've had people who are upset with me, I'll listen to what they say, and if I put myself in their shoes, so often I can go, I, I totally understand how that could make you feel, you know, whatever. Like, you know, make you feel like I was doing you wrong. And I, man, I'm, I'm sorry I made you feel that way. This is actually what I was thinking. This is actually what was in my heart. And, and, and that agreement and that humble, meek attitude of looking for reconciliation that doesn't have a bunch of contempt and anger on the inside toward the other, that thing will disarm and totally diffuse explosive situations. And Jesus is giving us the meekness that overcomes this internal issue of anger, and he's telling us how to walk it through. It's beautiful. It's it's awesome. So when you have somebody who has a problem with you, 
You go to them, you place high importance on it, and you listen to the reasons that they have. Some of them will be right on. Some of them will be misunderstandings. It's rare, hear me out, it's rare that everything they're saying has no basis in reality. Come on. That's so rare. What we tend to do is, even if the person's got 10 things and nine of them are really not based in reality and one of them is, we tend to discount the one that's right because they were quote unquote wrong on the other nine. Man. Feels like we're at the dentist just getting a cleaning right now. Just plaque buildup. Oftentimes, you know that's true. Oftentimes, you have a disagreement. The person says three things that are legitimate and three things that are not legitimate and we will discount the three legitimate things because of the three things they had wrong and to justify ourselves, we'll point at the three things they had wrong and act like they didn't even say the other three. Agree with your adversary quickly. Is that what the scripture actually says? I mean, I'm reading the Bible by Jesus, right? For years, I read that verse. I go, clearly he's not telling me to agree with the enemy. Clearly. No, he's not telling you to agree with with Satan. He's telling you to agree with the person who has a problem with you because probably the Lord has set up this collision to help you get your heart revealed a little bit. You know, everybody has blind spots. Everybody has issues in their own heart they can't see. The Lord is so kind, he allows you to get into massive personal difficulties to identify your own blind spots. Amen. He allows you to get into confrontations and challenges and problems with people so you get to see the reality of your heart when the pressure is on. You get to see how much love and lack of love there's actually going on in there. How much the spirit of murder is working in you and how much you're liberated from it. God is the one that sets up collisions. I promise you. He is so interested in the the cultivation of your character in your heart. He's so interested in that. He's far more interested in that than we imagine. He will set up situations where we collide with others so that we we can see the areas of sin, the, the, the weeds that are in the garden of our heart. We imagine it's, here's what we imagine. We imagine we're going through life and we are serving Jesus. We're just, I'm serving Jesus. Everybody else has a problem. And any problem that I'm experiencing on my way to Jesus, it's got to be them, can't be me. And so the Lord brings these people in your path to create issues between you and them so that you can actually identify the massive patch of crabgrass growing right in the middle of your garden. Because when that stuff comes out, it was already there. It wasn't that person that made it come out. It was already there, and now it's manifest because we have the right pressure. (laughs) This is good. The word is good. It's pure. Oh, I need this. 
So he goes, agree with them quickly while you're on the way. And, 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 and really the idea is, lest it gets worse and you find yourself under judgment. Because what will tend to happen is that somebody has a problem with us, we'll justify ourselves, and the relationship never gets mended, and it actually creates all sorts of ripples and problems all the way for the rest of our lives. How many of you know about broken relationships that have been t- two decades or three decades because of one little issue that didn't get reconciled? It's the principle of a, a root of bitterness that springs up and defiles many. Well, when that happens interpersonally, much is defiled, much is lost in human relationships. Beloved, we are here to be with one another. We're in the body together. Think about it. You're born into a family. You join a church body. Everything you do is in group. You work for a company. Everything you do is in group. We're part of the body. We're supposed to be interrelating. The Lord is dealing with the fact that when we sever, when we don't reconcile, that there's there's a judgment on us because we don't operate in our full effectiveness because we need each other. Agree quickly. Get that thing handled. I'm so sorry I said that. You know, I can see that. Just because because of the fact that I'm in leadership, what happens to me often is somebody will say, hey, uh, I need to talk to you. And I'll go, okay, yeah. And they'll go, hey, uh, I'm not so sure why you're mad at me or offended, but uh, I've been offended with you because you're offended at me. And I'll go, I'm sorry, I'm offended at you. And I, I don't, well, I know you looked at me. You were, you were walking into the hallway and you looked at me with that look and I knew you were upset with me. And I'll go, when was it? And they'll go, it was January 23rd at 8 a.m. in the morning. And I'm like, I've, I probably hadn't had my coffee yet. I, I don't know what I looked like. I am so sorry. But oftentimes there's things, I, I mean, I've had that experience many times where there's things that people are portraying in a situation that could just get, they could get totally handled if we would just come together and discuss it. And so many times those become our defining moments of relationship and the Lord doesn't want that. He wants those things handled. He wants us to, to reconcile. He wants us to root out the spirit of murder and to, and to, ultimate, to ultimately to love. Okay, amen, good. Let's look at the next area. Lust. As I mentioned earlier, is in the context of the marital relationship because he uses adultery. He specifically uses adultery. Now it applies to fornication and and to other areas of sexual immorality, but he's specifically dealing with, I think, the marital relationship. Let's look at verse 27. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body 
than for your whole body to go into hell. Okay, so once again, now we're on the seventh commandment. Once again, Jesus is dealing with the issue where the Pharisees, the rabbinic teachers, what they taught was a rigid literalness where they just said, you can't do adultery. Meanwhile, they were all harboring, you know, many, many, many were harboring lust in their heart. And we'll talk about it another time, how that was manifest in, in their lives and the way that they dealt treacherously with their wives and things of that nature. But he's doing, he's, he's reinterpreting uh, this one exactly the same way as the last one with the issue of anger. He's telling them the internal issue of lust is as critical as actually committing the act. That, beloved, is so, so significant. Because the way the Lord sees, he says, whatever you're doing with your heart, he goes, in my book, you're doing it. That is so, so critical. So he goes, you, you, you guys have become really good at walking the fine line and not actually crossing that line, but I'm telling you, the lust in the heart is the, actual in, is the actual issue. Now, let's look at this as we're landing here. Let's look at how he tells us to deal with this issue of lust in the heart. <laughs> if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Now, as I was mentioning earlier, if we read this with a rigid literalness, there's going to be a lot of guys, a lot of ladies walking around without eyes in. That, if, that's what, if that's literal and that's what that's supposed to, you know, we're supposed to take it literally, then we should really have a lot of people missing eyes, if we're honest. He's not talking about what it says literally. He's, he's, he's using irony. Irony is a a literary device to poke fun or to mock. And he's using an ironic explanation to give a a literal truth. The truth he's communicating is be ruthless about the issue of lust in your heart. He's being very, very straightforward and strong. Be ruthless about this issue of lust in your heart. He's using this ironic explanation to mock the literal rigidity of the Pharisees. They were, with rigidity, interpreting the law. So what they were doing was saying, as long as you don't actually murder the guy, you're fine. As long as you actually don't commit the act of of adultery or fornication, you're fine. And so Jesus communicates this truth of being ruthless, with sin, with lust in the heart, he communicates that truth by using their same mentality on them. He goes, here's what I want you to do. Rip your eye out. Cut your hand off. And and it's this underlying irony because as foolish as they are to to, uh, only go with the external, now he's telling them it's an internal issue Deal it with an external way. You know, external way. It's, an, it's an ironic approach. Does that make sense? See, if, if this was literal, it would, make, it, would make, it would be illogical because 
he's telling us that the issue is an issue of the heart. If he's literally telling us to gouge our eyes out, he's not dealing with the actual issue. He's dealing with the physical, not the heart. So he's using irony to poke fun and mock at the external focus of the Pharisees and the rabbinic teachers. If you're not convinced yet, let's just, I'll I'll borrow from Sam Storms. He's a great Bible teacher. He he takes this this, uh, example and he takes it to his extent. He goes, okay, imagine there's a businessman and imagine there's a woman that works in his office and and he finds himself lusting after her. And so he decides to go ahead and follow Jesus' prescription the scripture and he goes and rips his eye out. After a time of rehabilitation, he comes back to work and he finds that he can still see out of his other eye. So he realizes he's now still, you know, in a few weeks, still lusting. He goes home and he goes, all right, I'm going to follow Jesus and rip my other eye out. A little bit of rehabilitation, shows back up at work, no eyes, but he can hear her voice. She says a little something to him, his mind starts wandering, he goes, man, that's it, cutting my ears off. Goes and does that, shows back up at work. She wears a certain perfume. He can smell the perfume. It gets his mind wandering. That's it, my nose. The thing is completely illogical. I mean, you take it to the extent, that's not what Jesus is shooting for. He's not shooting for physical mutilation. He's actually shooting for a heart that's pure. And and so what he's saying is, the ripping out of your eye, the cutting off your hand, it's a a really intense uh, idea visually. But what he's saying is, I need you to comprehend how serious of an issue lust in the heart is, and I want you to deal with it ruthlessly in your approach to this sin. Just as as if you were ripping your own eye out. That's how ruthless I want you to be about it. I want you to deal, take, take, you know, don't do any shortcuts. Deal with this thing in a very focused and ferocious way. And he's using that ironic example to mock the Pharisees because he's telling us this, lust will destroy you. And that's where he takes it. He goes, it's better to enter eternity without one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And that's the massive point he's making. Unchecked lust in the heart will cause somebody to reject God and actually seal their eternity in hell. That's huge. That's huge. And beloved, this is a word that our society must hear because we live in an over-sexualized society. I mean, let's just be honest. What is, what is promoted as marketing, just commercials, just advertisements, a few generations, a few decades ago would have been considered, considered pornography. We are the proverbial frog in the kettle as it relates to this issue of perversion. But I want to tell you something. Though the, the norms in our society have changed, the word of God has not changed. And the issue of lust in the heart will be dealt with with every person from this generation just like it will be dealt with the same as every person from that generation or the preceding generations. 
Jesus' standard doesn't shift because the sin of society becomes greater. His standard is always his standard. Lust in the heart unchecked will destroy you. And that's what he's, that's what he's declaring. And this issue, I, I, I mean, I've done some study and some research on it. And just, this is an issue that the church has really got to come clean about. The church has got to get right with God about. And, and not just the, the pews, but the pulpits. Come on. And uh, there, are, there are different uh, ministries that have put out statistics that are just horrifying. And uh, the, the percentage of pastors who are on internet pornography and, and, and such. And uh, I, I remember seeing a, a statistic. This is probably eight or ten years old. It was a, a, a blind uh, questionnaire where you didn't know who the, the uh, person who filled it out was with that, that Josh McDowell put out. This is when I was a youth pastor. It's probably about ten, ten years old now, maybe, maybe older. And at that time, ten years ago, 50% of youth pastors admitted not just to having viewed internet pornography, but to actually having a regular addiction, a regular uh, relationship with internet pornography. 50%. Beloved, this is an issue that's got to be dealt with ruthlessly. And I, and I you know, I, I don't say this with arrogance. I, I feel like the, the Lord has, has graced me somehow in this area, which I, I would think of myself as the last man uh, to have this testimony, but I've never been on an internet pornography site by the grace of God, and, and I have that testimony because of God's goodness. And so I can stand and declare that we must come clean in this issue. Now, what people tend to think about when they've got an issue with pornography or lust at this level, they go, well, what about if somebody finds out that, I, but I've been struggling with this. What about, you know, sometimes it's marital relationship. What about my spouse? Or what about, you know, whoever? That's what Jesus is saying. Be ruthless. Deal with this in a ruthless way to get it rooted out. Because it doesn't matter the momentary pain you're going to go through. There is an eternal pain that's at stake here. And, and this is a serious, serious issue. And so Paul and Peter, they uh, support Jesus with language that they don't use anywhere else. Paul doesn't use this language anywhere else. 1 Corinthians six eighteen, He says, flee sexual immorality. <laughs> Run away. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. You destroy yourself. 1 Peter 2.11 Beloved, look at this. I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, why is that language in there? He goes, because you're not made for this place. You're passing through. I'm begging you, as ones who are just passing through this world, abstain from fleshly lust. Look at this phrase, which war against the soul. Paul says you get, into, you get into immorality and you're attacking your own flesh. Peter says you get into immorality and you're attacking your own soul. That's why Jesus was so strong about it. Be ruthless. That's why he uses that language. 
So if that's, if that's an area, you gotta confess it and forsake it and put every guard in place to get that thing out of your life and get some accountability in your life. Some people that won't just take the easy answer, but they'll ask you the hard questions. Come on. Everyone in this community, we ask every person in this community to put internet reporting software on your computer. That's a very small step to take so that you can have real accountability in a world that, that offers you up pornography at a, at a, just at a moment's notice. Put internet, uh, internet reporting software on your computer and get it for free. And then that way you have a built-in accountability structure so that you know that that's not an avenue you can go without there being some accountability in your life. Amen. These are the kind of things we've got to deal with more than how we can be successful in five areas. Let's deal with the fact that there is a lust problem in the church, in the West, because we're drowning in a, a, a society that's over-sexualized and giving itself to pornography, and we have got to become a light that's shining in the midst of a dark world. Come on. Oh, man, I feel that. And so... That's why Jesus is so firm about it. And this isn't a thing where we rail against people. No, no, with a heart of tenderness and compassion, we call people out of it. We offer real accountability. We call them out of sin. Come on, and and we work them through. That's how we do. We don't just, you know, just reject and rail on people that, that are challenged in these areas. God's always redemptive. He's always bringing people to redemption. Okay, good. Amen. There's our first two areas. Some people refer to them as weeds in the garden. I think that's an interesting way to think of them. These are areas of sin that Jesus, I think they're key areas. I think they're critical areas of sin that Jesus is telling us how to deal with. The issue of anger in the heart, lust, covenant breaking, oaths, retaliation. These are key areas that the antidote is love, and if we, if we live these areas clean, I'm telling you, it's going to compel us and propel us into a life of righteousness and beauty in God. I think that's why he nails these, these certain areas. All right, good, amen. All right, let's stand. I love the word. I love when I approach the word and I feel like I've just had my teeth cleaned or, or taken a hot shower or something or got sprayed down with a fire hose. Sprayed down with a fire hose isn't very fun, but you're clean afterwards. <laughs> that was a little joke. It's okay. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we see the truths that you declared in the Sermon on the Mount, we recognize the areas of inner sin. We, we recognize these areas of contempt and disdain that we hold in our heart toward others. God, areas of lust we've internalized. And we're just like the Pharisees of old, imagining if we don't commit it with our hands, if we don't commit it with, the, with actually in the flesh, that somehow that's okay. And you are so clear about it. It's not about 
what we do with our, with our hands, it's about what goes on in our hearts far before we ever commit those sins with our hands. So Lord, I'm asking right now, come near us. Come near us. Come near us with deliverance. Draw us away into love. The antidote for sin is love. The antidote for anger is love. The antidote for lust is love. For retaliation, it's love. For being honest, keeping covenant, it's love. So come, Lord. Come, Lord. Just just for a moment, let's just put our hearts before the Lord and ask Him to search us, to reveal to us the inner issues, particularly in these areas of, of, of anger and contempt and this area of lust. Let's just ask Holy Spirit to, to speak to us for a moment.